Good afternoon and welcome to another UK Column interview. And this is an interview with a little bit of a difference. And the reason I say that is because I'm keeping in mind, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Know thy enemy. And that is a very important theme for today's interview. But before I bring my guest on screen, I just want to say that my guest and I spent together nine hours nearly in the company of Sir Tony Blair and his conference, The Future of Britain, last week. Now, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, the clues in the word, Institute for Global Change, hosted a conference. Now, the Blair Institute, as I call it, their message is here to turn bold ideas into reality, to help governments and leaders get things done. They are policy experts. Now, the Future of Britain conference, which we just happened to manage to notice and we signed up to watch, it covered everything. <clears throat> and it was an extraordinary event. It was held on the 18th of July and it was covering many issues from AI to geopolitics to technology, data, the NHS, security, with a vast array of speakers. And just some of the speakers that I'm just going to introduce you to, a few familiar names that you might find a little strange mixed up. So we had Sir Patrick Valance, we had Deborah Meaden uh, from Dragon's Den, we had Jamie Oliver, the chef. Then we had Dr. Henry Kissinger, we had President Emmanuel Macron. We had the Rockefeller Institute. We had Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary, as well as Keir Starmer, and of course, the Right Honourable Sir Tony Blair. And our hosts for the day were John Sopel and Emily Maitlis. And today, I am so relieved. <laughs> that someone else witnessed the conference at the same time as me. I'm absolutely over the moon to be joined by Ben Rubin. And many of you will know Ben from his previous interview, which will be linked in the article beneath this interview with David Scott on the effects of big data and particularly in the NHS. And Ben and I watched the conference last week and we're going to give our takeaways and we're going to tell you what we witnessed. So, Ben, welcome back to UK Column. It's great to have you back. And thank you so much for signing up to the future of Britain. What are your takeaways? <laughs> thank you, Debbie. That was a wonderful introduction. Um, it's great to be back. I love UK Column. I've got a huge amount of respect for you and what you do. And uh, you are really the only people asking the really hard questions on a consistent basis in the UK media. So plaudits to you lot. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, for, by way of introduction, because some of you might not know who I am, in fact, probably most of you won't know who I am. Uh, I'm Ben Rubin. I'm an innovation consultant. I've spent nearly 20 years helping large companies generally, but large organizations to transform themselves using advanced technology, so apps, uh, connected devices, artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain, all that kind of stuff. 
that kind of uh, fourth industrial revolution type type technology uh, in lots of different sectors of the system, healthcare, media, finance, um, retail, food supply, bits of central government all over the place. Uh, so I have a lot of interest in um, the future and how it's built. And it was a fascinating event, as, um, as, as Debbie's just pointed out. We had Tony Blair, who I will give a little bit of a preamble to, because I think it's important to understand who bears the message with this kind of stuff, particularly when you're talking about the future of the country. Tony Blair, our former PM, who in 1993 was one of the first people to participate in the World Economic Forum's Global Leaders of Tomorrow program. That was the inaugural year. And that was the precursor to the Young Global Leaders program, which is currently running today, still run by the World Economic Forum. So he's got very close links to Klaus Schwab and to the agendas and plans that have been developed at the forum over the past 30 years. He was elected prime minister in 1997 by a landslide. He brought with him new labor. What was the song? Things can only get better. That's what we were promised by, uh, by Tony et al. You know, let's look back 26 years now. Do we feel like things have only got better? I'm not sure that that's the case, actually. Uh, what else did he do? He took us into Iraq. So one of the primary architects of the Iraq war and the war on terror, the war on terror, which has left us with more terror, actually, and in Afghanistan with a, a radical Islamic superstate, heavily armed now with, I think, something like $85 billion worth of U.S. weapons and, and uh, ally weapons that were left there by Biden a couple of years ago. That's a direct consequence of what Blair was doing in the early 2000s. Uh, he classified the Operation or investigation into child sex abuse at the BBC, amongst other places. He classified that report for 99 years. Uh, he was responsible for swathes of privatisation in the NHS through these PPI schemes, these uh, public-private initiatives, uh, which we're still paying for today. Uh, he led the vaccine task force in response to COVID. And if you're a fan of this news channel, you'll be familiar with how that went and continues to go and he was one of the main people the main international voices leading out the um government not just governments the 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 internationally coordinated campaign to build back better after covid19 which was of course one of the flagship programs of the world economic forum where he was one of the first people to go on the global leaders tomorrow program back in 1993 so Tony Blair, in that context, is coming to us today, or last week, Tuesday, to share his vision for the future of Britain, despite his previous record. Apparently, we're supposed to sit here and listen to him and all the people that he's brought through. So anyway, casting aside all cynicism that I might have, I signed up. And Debbie and I spent the day watching this and furiously texting each other back and forward going, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that. Did you just hear this thing? And uh, it was it, it was it was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. And um, I'm looking forward to, to diving into any and all of it, actually. Debbie. 
well, you, you mentioned things can only get better. Let's not forget the uh, band, because I'm old enough to remember this, the band that uh, sang it was called D-Ream. I think it's been more like a nightmare, hasn't it, than a dream. Um, and, and I think you've brought up so many points in what you've just said there, because, you know, the Build Back Better that Tony Blair was all for, of course, and the let's get everybody vaccinated, let's get the whole planet vaccinated. The message at the conference, as I understand it, seems to have changed into build more faster. That's That seems to be where we're going. And, and you know, all that you've said about Tony Blair, um, we say that people are puppets and we wonder who's running the country. And I'm wondering whether what we witnessed was the master of puppets and whether we actually, do we have a secret government in this country running our affairs? Because it was an extraordinary mix of personalities to have. I think we had the head of the government's AI unit, um, Ian Hogarth, I believe his name is. We had the Conservative Party Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, and we saw Tony Blair, Sir Tony, um, uh, excuse me, at Night of the Garter of the Highest Order, let's not forget, um, almost, gla- his eyes were glazing over as he was interviewing Sakia Starmer, but what I thought was was really, it, it, it struck me, Ben, and I know it struck you too, because we were, as you say, we were on the phone and we were texting, but during lockdown, during the pandemic, there was a photograph of uh, Sir Tony looking very much like Gandalf with long hair. And you and I both independently watched this conference. You know, we weren't sitting together. We weren't in the next room. We were we were completely independent. And yet we both felt that he looked very frail. He looked almost, he didn't look terribly well, I didn't think. I thought he looked thin and I thought his voice was weak. So um, do you want to say a bit about how you felt he came over amongst all the trumpets and the glory and the stage sets and and this very extravagant event that was going on with this like little man in the middle of the mm. stage looking a little pathetic, I thought. Yeah, I mean, he, he was certainly he was certainly presenting himself as, as some kind of chairman figure. That was the sense that I got from it, right? So, you know, the uh, if if the Punch and Judy show of um, Tory v Labour v well, it's really just those two at the moment. Um, you know, with a few other people like yapping away at the, at the fringes. If if the Punch and Judy show of, of that whole um, thing in Westminster is a bit too chaotic for you, um, then why don't you come over here and sit down with Uncle Tony and we can have a real proper conversation about what should happen next. And and and, and, and as you said, he actually managed to bring through representatives of, of the, the, the major, including the sitting ministers from um, opposition parties to the one that he used to lead, people who are in top-level positions in the civil service, despite the fact that he's got nothing to do with, with our government. He has no formal position at all in, 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 in the day-to-day running of the state. And, and yet here he is convening this meeting of all the talents and uh, sharing this grand vision for the future, which, um, you know, it really was just extraordinarily predictable. He needs to get some new ideas. Yeah, like he's been talking about things like ID cards for the thick end of 20 years now, and we still don't want them. 
Um, you know, just just one example. But but it's all the same stuff repackaged that we've been fed down over the past few years from World Economic Forum and all these big international institutions that just want to consolidate and centralise their power as much as possible. And he's absolutely a, a perfect representative of that. Um, and and I think you're right. I think um, let's just say the, uh, the 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 scale of the task is probably getting to him at this point, because actually um, it's not just the the system that they are attempting to implement is undesirable for humanity, which it is. It's extraordinarily undesirable. We don't want it. They want it. We don't want it. Uh, it's also an impossible thing to implement. Uh, the idea that you can establish a centralized, technocratic, global control grid for everything is extreme hubris. You can't do it. It's not, it's not a feasible thing to do. And I think that that realization might be dawning on some of the people who are, who are, who are fronting up this plan i think yeah blair is blair's a good example of that he's 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 um he's he, he, he sounded a bit he sounded he sounded weaker than he used to let's just put it like that i thought it looked like uh, a conference of the great pretenders you know pretending we needed vaccines to protect us pretending we were in climate change emergency pretending we needed all of this technology it, it just seemed extraordinary and, I, and if if when when people go to the tony blair website uh, and please do go and have a look if you've got the stomach for it because he really has got a plan for everything whether it's education whether it's science technology geopolitics you name it Tony Blair has got a vision for it. Yet what I thought was interesting during the conference is so many people were saying that Britain is broken. But I did notice that a few, let's look at a, a few of the things that he said, Ben, because one of the things that he said that struck me was that the benefits of NHS data would earn the government 10 billion each year. So it's very clear from where I'm sat that Tony Blair wants to sell our data because it's very precious. Our NHS data is, is very precious. But he also says that using this real-time data can help reduce hospitalizations by 60%. Um, what are your thoughts on that? 10 billion every year selling NHS data. To who? To the pharmaceutical industry. I mean that's that's where this that's who they're selling access to. So it's useful to the pharmaceutical industry to have access to uh, patient information because then they can make predictions and models about uh, where illnesses come from, how they um, develop across the population, what opportunities there are to intervene in the spread of these things. You know, like right from a, from a from a from a chronic perspective, just to things that play out over you know, decades of someone's life to things that are actually happening really quickly. Uh, you know, like like the, the, the spread of um, the flu, for example, you know, like you could see very quickly that um, you, there's an increase in people who are signing off sick and, you know, that kind of thing. Like that's, you know, relatively easy for them to, 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 to pick out of this, this, this data, right? Like, and, and, and everything in between. Uh, because what they're capturing is extraordinarily rich, extraordinarily personal. I mean, it's right down to the, the level of the individual. 
um, is a whole mixture of different information. Some of it um, very qualitative, you know, so like actually like written comments and remarks from a, a, a clinician, for example. Um, some of it's very quantitative and binary, so it like either is or isn't something. And some of it is extraordinarily complex. Yeah, so actually the genomic data that I've talked quite a lot about previously here and elsewhere um, is your is this, that's your genetic code, right? It's your unique resonant frequency as a human being, um, and their intention is to have that and all the other things that I've mentioned on a database and to make that available to um, pharmaceutical companies and uh, you know I guess whoever else they can convince. To, to see to 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 pay for access um, out in the open market, basically, and it sounds like from from the remark that you picked up on that that they see that as a big revenue generator. Yeah, so there's a there's ten ten billion there for government from selling NHS data access. Okay, well, thanks for saying that out loud, out loud Tony. Uh, it's good that we now know that you do it in that way. Um, and uh, the the whole thing, really, I mean, the most most remarkable thing is, because actually you were saying uh, a moment ago that, that, that we were told from the outset that the nation is in a perilous state, everything's going accordingly wrong, um, and, you know, it's all, it's all bad, and uh, we've got to get a, a vision for a better future. And then the first two things that he comes out with when he's prioritizing the issues that we got to, that we got to deal with as a nation. Number one was what he called the sustainability of the state. Right. So out of all of the things that we as a nation are currently facing, the most important thing for Tony Blair is the sustainability of the state. Well, the state, as far as I can tell, is behind most of the problems that we face. So its sustainability is not my top priority. And it's certainly not my top priority. I don't think it should be anyone's top priority for the state to be creating artificial markets using citizen data or, or, or anything else of ours in order to fund itself further, right? Because we're, we're, we're currently looking at that is a remarkable figure that I found a couple of days ago. We're currently looking in the UK. Last year, total government spend was one trillion one hundred and seventeen billion pounds right that's like over forty percent of the gdp in 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 government spend it's absolutely remarkable and what one of the and one of the great um benefits of digital technology and i, I said at the start like i've worked as a, as an innovation consultant in 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 the markets for a long time and one of the great promises the great benefits the great impacts of digital technology is what we call it's like a 10x principle right so you can do 10 times more 10 times better for 10 times less money yeah so it's and if you apply that to government spending what that should mean is the the digitization of the state would reduce our spend on it by an order of magnitude so rather than it being 1.2 trillion goes down to uh you know 100 120 billion whilst delivering better outcomes that's what should be happening but that's not what's happening at all what, what's happening is that the state is sustaining itself if not getting larger and i guess you know my interpretation of this having 
thought about this over the past couple of days is that what's happening is that with with the the 10x rather than reducing the spend what they're trying to do is to increase the 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 the, the reach and the power of the state instead and that's how they're spending those returns back back on themselves and that runs through everything in in what they were talking about today it's all about uh control it's control too of a very selective uh population and and i was going to ask you about that because you know ai and tech if it's in somebody like you if it's if, if, if it's in your hands then you know to use that tech and that ai for the good of and you know i'm an old school ward sister uh, i'm a nurse I'm not used to AI and tech and people are telling me that it's really good and I'm saying it's really bad and they're going, no, it's really amazing if it's used in the right way. But the intention seems to be nefarious and of course there's no regulation. But one thing that did strike me at the conference was just before Satoni was hailed onto the stage with trumpets and, and all of the applause that he got, we were treated to three youngsters talking, whether it was kind of the Tony Blair, Greta Thunberg, tokenistic young person to talk about the future of Britain. And with 30 million people cu currently using the NHS app, I worry that Tony Blair is almost the Pied Piper and he's encouraging, motivating um, grooming, uh, paying, uh, incentivizing all of these youngsters to join him on this nefarious, in, 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 in my opinion, intention of using AI and of using tech in the future. And it worries me that whereas I can turn around and say, I'm not going to use a black screen anymore, youngsters aren't that keen on giving them up. What can we do? to educate our youngsters that the black screens that they're on at the moment probably aren't in their best interests. But for people like you, can you create them a new system that we can give them the best of both worlds? We can give them the tech, we can give them the games, we can give them the information, but not all the bad that goes with it? <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, um, so the... The, the short answer is yes. I mean, you can you can recreate relatively easily now the bits of the current system that are useful and get rid of the bits that, that aren't so useful. That's totally doable. How you then influence the younger generation to migrate and to ch change their value system and, you know, essentially... Uh, 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 abandon these technologies that they've, that they've grown up with. Right? I think it's a really, a really important thing to understand with, with younger generations that they've had life mediated to them through a piece of glass for their entire lives. So they're used to it. They don't understand how you, you might go about doing things without it. Right Now, my personal view is that that technology has been seriously damaging particularly the phones. Yeah? So actually, desktop, laptop computers is one thing, but when you've all of a sudden got your device constantly on you and you have access to all of those different distractions um and all of those different uh, uh um yeah distractions um then 
uh, that that becomes something becomes something different. Like you got to you got to break a, a behavior pattern basically, and that's really difficult. If you know anything about human beings. Um, but the uh, in terms of the 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 younger generation, yeah, you you um, you landed on something really important there, right? I mean, this is a, this is a classic a classic tactic of tyrannical dictators. Like you, you put a couple of young people out there and say, "Oh, we must listen to these young people." If if you if you disagree with what I'm saying, then you got to, that means you're disagreeing with them and you're attacking them in some way, and you can't do that because they're only young children you know it's like it's he's, he's basically using them as as, as like a, as, as a human shield uh really 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 cynical and actually and, and interestingly they had um the the uh, it wasn't just presented by tony blair this event important thing to remember it was also presented jointly remarkably for this young fellow metty coban mbe who is a Labour Party politician from Hackney. Um, he's got a big role in the net zero stuff going on around Hackney and introducing ULEs and closing down Church Street and Stoke Newington and all of that kind of stuff. And he uh, got his MBE because of his efforts to involve young people in uh, the, 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 the political process. Yeah, so actually, he was he was he was applauded for that. He was he was um, he was given an honour for that. And um, and what that has amounted to, what he's doing recently is uh, through his organisation, which I can't actually remember the the name of, uh, I'm afraid. But um, but you can look him up, Metty Coban. Um, he's got got his own website, uh, as you'd expect, given you know what he's up to these days. Um, he's now working with Google on this. Uh, this this uh, drive to get more young people into politics, like that, and it's all positioned around democracy. Uh, this idea that, um, and I think ultimately, which is the the grand strategy of the left, as they style themselves, is that um, if we get people out of the school system young when they've been heavily indoctrinated and they haven't really done much and they don't really know anything, and um, convince enough of them to get involved in the political process and to uh, to go along with these crackpot ideas that we've come up with that don't work, that have demonstrably never worked anyway that they've been tried, but we are still insistent that we're going to make happen somehow, you know, which is a lot of what this, this left hard left-wing ideology is. Um, if we can get enough kids on board, then we'll be able to overwhelm the democratic process, basically. And, um, and and kind of force these ideas through by having, you know, more people behind them, despite the fact that they don't have anything to do with, you know, what works, what, what has traditionally thrived in the nation that we're trying to foist them onto, you know, all those kind of minor details that, uh, that people casually try to forget. They get involved in these extraordinarily complicated conversations. I have to say that um, I was probably equally shocked when I saw, um, I think his name is Rajiv Shah, who's the uh, president of the Rockefeller Institute, coming on screen and announcing that the Rockefeller Institute was working with the UK government. I mean, there was some extraordinary 
revelations and some extraordinary guests. I mean, for anybody that hasn't seen some of the clips, I mean, just watching Emmanuel Macron, but, you know, I'm staying on health for a minute because I, I want to also highlight what their plans are for education and for our children and for future generations, because the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change seems, as I say, have a plan for absolutely everything. But recently he said um, genomics was going to be used to identify risk and prevent disease, that cell gene therapy and mRNA were opening up new possibilities. So this is clearly the agenda forward. This is clearly the future of Tony Blair's Britain. But what I thought was interesting was that apart from Deborah Meaden, uh, Dragon's Den, and an extraordinary interview with Jamie Oliver, I thought, completely, I felt it was almost surreal, to be honest. Um, But apart from that, all the speakers, Ben, weren't from the United Kingdom. And it was like the whole institute was looking for international innovators. Am I missing something? Have we not got any innovators in the UK or are we just shipping out? Because, in fact, Ian Hogarth, who heads the UK government's AI unit, said that he was actively headhunting for international Um, scientists and innovators. And he was actually saying to these innovators, drop your career, whether you're with Google or Facebook or Meta or whoever, drop your career and come and work for us in the UK government. So is there nobody in the UK that we can rely on for innovation? Well, apparently, according to them, that that would be the case, but um, I I don't buy it. Uh, we are a um, unbelievably innovative and generative nation. We have been for centuries. Uh, we are notoriously bad at large-scale distribution of those innovations, but we do have some good exemplar businesses out there. Um, and we should be investing in our own people and our own talent, fundamentally. And I actually think it's really interesting that they are so dead set on bringing in international workers to work on really profoundly structural technologies, right? I mean, the things that underpin uh, governance, our system, how it operates at a base level, and they're bringing in people from other countries you know that might be because um there is a relatively small market of these people out there right that's certainly true and actually there was a, there was one of the presentations a guy called Vishal Sikha who basically explains that there's about um only about 50,000 people in the world who can actually explain how chat gpt works yeah, so what you're talking about is a very very small number of people so you kind of have to get them where you can find them um, but the idea that we don't have any here or shouldn't be trying to cultivate a, an environment where we do have more people like that here is um, is kind of absurd to me. And I also question the intelligence or appropriateness of lots of those people coalescing around the needs and the wants and the investment of the British government. Is that really where you want to be building your career? 
You know, these are the people that invented the concentration camp, you know. And, uh, you know, maybe there's some attraction in the scope of what they're putting forward, right? So, you know, this is a fully-fledged, cradle-to-grave, not even multi-sector. Like, this is going to run across absolutely everything. Like, this data platform, the information that they're going to hold or they intend to hold on every single man, woman, child in this country and almost certainly beyond is completely unparalleled. Um, so as a technical challenge, I can imagine it being quite enticing and exciting, but the ethics around it, are uh, they're really non-existent. And actually, a lot of this stuff just shouldn't exist at all, I don't think, particularly not in, in the context that they're proposing to use it. Ben, I want to ask you, in your professional opinion, Tony Blair and his cronies, guests, were talking about AI discovering a drug for lung disease. This has been designed by AI. Um, AI will be governing, if you like, clinical trials, um, artificial intelligence. AI will be able to detect eye disease and cancer. I mean, this is full automation. Can How can we trust AI to do all of those things, to discover drugs, to oversee clinical trials and diagnose people? Is that really possible? No. I mean, not, not in any sensible way. Ab absolutely not. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that a lot, a lot of this stuff, I mean, if you understand how the health system, I, mean, I do this when I say health system because it's not really a health system, it's a sick system. It's, it's designed to make you sick and to treat you and to kill you as, as profitably as possible on a whole number of fronts. If you look at um, things like the, one of the primary use cases for AI in healthcare is uh, diabetic retinopathy. So when you get uh, diabetes, you develop eye problems. And uh, artificial intelligence is really good at pattern recognition. So when you put an image in front of it, it will go, oh, look, it's one of those things. And it will do it really quickly. And it can do it at an industrialized scale. So it's good at detecting things like that. But the question is, why have you got diabetic retinopathy in the first place? It's because you're diabetic. Well, why are you diabetic? Because the food supply is, 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 is completely inadequate. Right, so they'll come in and say, "Oh, well, we can we can treat, we can cover, um, uncover this illness, we'll diagnose this illness using our fancy technology." But they aren't thinking, or some of them aren't. Some of them definitely are, because this is a racket, right? This, this is a market that they've constructed out of this stuff. Um, uh, they're, they're they're not making systemic analysis and recommendations that would actually fix the underlying problem. Right, so the technology gets wheeled out as a solution to something, um, but they they actually don't. They're not interested in fixing that. They're interested in creating a market for their technology, which is a very different thing. Although Tony Blair did say we're slipping, you know, he said the UK are slipping in the development of AI. Although what he did say, which really um, got my ears pricked up was that I didn't realize that synthetic biology 
was actually came originated from the UK. There's more on synthetic biology to come in the future. But there was um there was a statement, and I can't remember who made it. It might have been Tony Blair himself, saying that they wanted to use modern cloud systems to help state interventions. What does that mean in simple terms, Ben? They want to use modern cloud systems to support state interventions. What was the context of that? Sorry, Debbie. It was said that the ambition for the UK, for the government, was uh, for the UK government was to use modern cloud systems, and I don't actually really understand clouds, to be quite honest, um, to help state interventions. But what state interventions would modern cloud systems? I don't really understand because I'm not a tech a tech person what that means yeah. in English do you know or is it again word soup to confuse us and and no. throw us off some scent I asked for the clarification because I uh, I thought that you were talking about it as it relates to a specific bit of um the 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 system but actually what he's just said is no we're going to use cloud computing to make interventions everywhere as it relates to the state. Um, yeah, that's basically, cloud basically means, to really simplify it, yeah, it's someone else's computer, right? That's what it is. There isn't some cloud floating around above your head. There's a cable that runs from your house to their computer, yeah, their servers, their racks of computers, whether it's Google or Amazon or whoever it might be, and they do all of the computation and all the legwork over there, and then they send the answer back to you over here. Yeah, so that's 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 really what cloud is. It's just, it's as simple as that, and it doesn't get um, you know the the, uh, it, the a lot of this terminology is designed to confuse people and to make it sound more complicated than it is, and and you know to create a whole kind of mystique and world around it. And um, but but it's it. it it is really as simple as that. So it's basically saying government servers, which it will, it will probably rent from one of the big tech companies because the big cloud computing platforms, uh, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, and AWS, Amazon Web Services, right? they're the big three dominant global cloud computing platforms. They work absolutely with government a lot. Um, so that basically means government's going to be using their computers to keep tabs on you and to make interventions, whatever that means, right? And if it's, as, if it's as broad as that, it could be absolutely anything, right? And it could be down to the level of, you know, because we talked a little, haven't talked too much yet about how this is manifesting in, say, the education system, for example. But there was one of the presentations in the day by a lady called Priya Lakhani, who's developed this AI platform for the classroom that operates um, kind of like a uh, like a teaching assistant for kids. She basically describes her product as intervening with student misconceptions five hundred thousand times a week, and they they're using this a lot in private schools, and they want to roll this out into the state school system in this country. Is the reason why she was on the stage, and I just found that really interesting because if you were a government-run system. Who's defining what a misconception is by a pupil, right? Like, 
if is it possible for them to misconceive that it might be possible for a world to exist which doesn't have a state for example would the state run system allow for that i think probably not yeah so the level of power that this provides to a very very small number of people of dubious motivations and backgrounds as we just listed out just what blair's been involved in over the past 30 years we haven't even got into a bunch of what the other people have on stage have, have been involved in or who they're backed by like the gates foundation or google or whoever it might be yeah but the idea that we're going to give these demonstrably bad actor fascist types and the tiny, tiny, tiny group of people who, you know, in that sort of 50,000 people globally who can actually explain how this technology is built, what it does and how to deploy it, we're going to put all of that power into the hands of these people. I mean, that's just, that's just um, totalitarian dictatorship everywhere. And you, you use the term puppet master for Blair. And I think you're right. I think he is a puppet master. But um, and and we are essentially the puppets in his little sordid play that he's 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 trying to play out, and the AI is the string. In that analogy, the AI is the thing that will allow the puppet master to make you do this, make you do that, make you dance a jig, spin around, do whatever it is that they want, because they dictate what you can look at what you can think, what you can say. They understand how you, how you think as an, at an individual level, right? Like they're talking about putting this in classrooms, building this into a digital identity system, obviously, because Blair is obsessed with this idea of building a, an ID system. So actually, rather than trying to win the argument with the adults, he's just cheated and gone direct to schools and is saying that this thing is going to be implemented for children, right? Um, so and um and, and within that that data set that's being built up about you will have sat with you for your entire life essentially they'll know you inside out they'll know how to manipulate you how to how to silence you how to trick you uh you know the idea that this is is um universally going to be deployed for uh, by you know, by well-meaning, well-intentioned people for, for for positive ends for humanity, it seems a bit naive and fanciful. If I'm being honest. No, I, I think Ben, you've you've hit on something so important. But I have to say, as someone of more mature years, when you said the cloud's not up there, I know, I kind of know, but I kind of don't, and I think a lot of people of my generation and my age, we hear about these clouds, but sometimes people don't realize that whatever data they're putting into their phone, their laptop or whatever, it's going on a cloud, but who owns the cloud? How can you get that data off the cloud? Where's the cloud going to go? And, and I think all of these uncertainties, but I think because you've you've you're not talking about education i think it's really important that we stay on education because what i took from um the blair conference the future of britain with regards to education was the fact that they were saying education was broken and that one of the reasons that education was broken was because children 
learnt in different ways. And of course, every child has a different cognitive style. They learn in a different way. So they were trying to, to make out that every child needed to have a one-to-one tutor. And immediately I thought, is this going to be an AI buddy? Are they going to be having one-to-one tuition based on their cognitive style, whether it be they learn through pictures or they learn through words or they learn through listening? Whichever cognitive style that child has, will they be given an AI buddy in the best interests, of course, of your child, because they will be getting one-to-one tuition. But what information will be fed into that AI buddy? Who will supervise it? Because what, what I got from it also was that this AI buddy, not only would it be Um, responsible for giving a child tuition or giving a child information, it would also retain what they were thinking, what they were doing, what activities they were getting up to out of school, their personal life, their family life. This to me was incredibly invasive and like 1984 on speed, or did I get that wrong? Well, 1984 on speed, I'm not sure that I can... talk directly to that but yeah it's it's uh it it is it's completely invasive yeah it's and actually you the example you that you're talking about now i think this was the khan academy guy right so this is an american guy from new orleans um former hedge fund analyst got some money from bill gates and google to expand his online tutoring business and that's now developed into what you've just described, right? So there's, um, you know, they they put it in classrooms, and kids now have a li- a little person, a little a little avatar that sits with them throughout the day on a consistent basis, and will build up a huge amount of knowledge about them. It will know them better than they know themselves, almost. And Obviously, all this is positioned as a great thing, but I was thinking about this earlier. I mean, first of all, that's that's what teachers are supposed to do, right? That that's that that one-to-one interaction role is the craft and the the talent and the vocation of the teaching profession, right? Like that's what that's what they're supposed to do. So it, I think it it degrades that relationship quite significantly. And then the other thing that it does, I think this is probably even more important than that, because people will say, ah, well, you know, teachers are overworked, and sometimes they are, and like they, that's, that, that's all fair enough. But kids also help each other out in the classroom, right? So, like, the part of the learning process is collaboration with your peers, yeah, and you come at a problem together in order to solve it. Well, this has just completely removed that from the equation. So now you will have this little digital buddy and they will help you through the problem. And, and, and essentially, that you know, as well as destroying the, the human interaction and the relationship with your peers and all that kind of thing, it also sets people up to expect that they're always going to have a little digital buddy there to help them and to to guide them and to provide information for them. I don't understand that that's, a, that that's something that we should, I don't think that's something we should be promoting, you know. 
Um, and just thinking about the workforce, you know, people talking about uh, there was some other discussion, I think, uh, on, on 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 one of the panel sessions as well, right? About you know what we need to do to to to, to make the workforce ready and to, to get them ready to come out and to be valuable members of of society and all that kind of stuff. Well, tutoring them with artificial artificial intelligence and, and making them dependent on a little digital buddy to tell them how to do everything, I think it's probably one of the worst things that we'll ever, in hindsight, have done to to to, to education. You know, like if you put any of these kids in a room with a piece of paper and a pencil, would they actually be able to do anything, say anything, formulate a a, a thought? Like, uh, I don't know. We don't know what the long-term implications of, of, of that are. Um, and but if they're anything like what we've seen with a lot of this, you know, overuse of digital devices, you know, like mental health crises and a whole bunch of other things that are going on, then it's entirely possible that the, 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 the mid to long-term implications or the mid, mid to long-term um, consequences of all this stuff are going to be really bad. And it wouldn't surprise me just looking at who, who comes bearing the gifts. Yeah, who is it? Who's showed up with the AI? Oh, look, it's the people behind the wars and the people behind the crises and the people who, um, you know, work on behalf of the banks. Like, you know, the idea that this is going to be universally good for humanity when deployed by these characters, I think, is, is pretty naive. Yeah, and I think I should just probably clarify that. What I should have said was 1984 on warp speed, probably. But I think it's um, also important to highlight to our audience that on the Tony Blair website, as well as the Future of Britain conference, he has his plans, his his papers on different categories. And one of them is the future of ed tech. And it's a very interesting paper because it seems to be suggesting that he's going to go for a radical, I say he's going to go, this is in his plan, and he is a policymaker, apparently. Uh, this is a think tank, and they do help governments lead the way. So his way seems to be a digital ID for all pupils. So we're looking at digital ID for the whole population, but now there seems to be a subset of youngsters that will be given a digital ID in school. So all of their data will be, I, I should imagine, centralised, but they're also going to be encouraged to wear wearables because that was another big thing of the Tony Blair Future of Britain conference in the future of wearables and tracking and surveillance devices, basically. So, you know, the, the fact that we're getting digital IDs for schools, how much information will schools be handling and holding and where on which cloud will that be going and I guess probably the most important question of all is will parents know <laughs> because it seems to me that parents are pretty much kept out of every loop at the moment and I'm not sure what information their children will be volunteering to school that will be stored on some cloud but that seems to be Tony Blair's ambition for for our children. Yeah, the state think that they own your kids, right? Like they 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 treat us them like, like assets essentially to be to be tagged and bagged and tracked and traced and manipulated and lied to and censored and you know that's that's just how, just how they operate. It's the entire mindset and corporations aren't much different, you know. So when you get the state and the corporations coming together to talk about the future, this is the kind of idea that gets put, gets put forward. But it's deeply inappropriate. 
Just to tie up um, a little bit on the Future of Britain conference, it was finished with a an interview with Ben Wallace, and then we had Keir Starmer giving a speech, and then Tony Blair interviewing Keir Starmer, which was all really rather nauseating. But some of the targets, just to summarise a couple of the targets, they're looking at having 300,000 electric vehicle chargers by 2030, 600,000 heat pump installations by 2028. Apparently half of all journeys cycled will be cycled or walked by 2030 hope not by e-bikes more to come on e-bikes soon um, and we're going to remove all diesel trains by 2040 and all homes will have to meet the epcc by 2035 so there are some big aims by the tony blair um institute for change have you got any final takeaways from the future of britain conference that you just want to to wrap up on we don't need them. We don't need these people. We don't need their plans. Um, they need us. They need us to pay for it all. They need us to go along with it. We need us to not. They need us to not question them. Uh, they need us to not talk to each other. Um, and they need us divided and easy to control. And um, if that's the situation, then it's you know it's much simpler for them to 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 implement the things that they're trying to implement to 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 enforce this um, totalitarian technocratic superstate down onto the population of the UK and 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 everywhere else around the world. But uh, we don't need them at all. So um, my uh, main summary would be um, it was a remarkable thing to watch uh, the the level of um, arrogance was staggering um, and I think that this is probably the high watermark in terms of globalist ambition right the, the the idea that they can project and implement these grand plans like i think that the the uh the the that whole house of cards is, is 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 about to fall down and it's about to fall down because people like you and me and whoever else is watching this and everyone else who isn't watching this as well can disengage from their plans um take their energy and attention away from them and go out and find and create better exponentially better systemic solutions to all of the problems that these people say that they're trying to solve but have actually caused most of and we can go and do that um away from these globalist corporate bureaucratic forces as a united people and that is how we get away from this thing and i did a little stream on sunday uh, which is a film by a guy called Yuri Bezmenov, who was a defector from uh, the KGB uh, to uh, the Canadians in the 80s. And he talked a lot about the methods of the KGB and how they, um, how they undermine and uh, subvert nations and the processes that they go through and the amount of time that it takes and that kind of thing. And actually, Tony Blair being voted in in 1997 actually matches up quite neatly on the the kind of the, to the first phase of 
subversion of a nation, which is demoralization. Yeah, so you need about 20 years, 20, 25 years, let's say, to demoralize a society. And that's about the, uh, the amount of time that it takes to educate one generation. Yeah. So Blair coming in and fundamentally changing a whole bunch of stuff in the health system and in, and in education and um, universities and uh, all the stuff that New Labour did, you know, it seems to have set us on quite a perilous downwards path, right? I don't think that things have got better at all since Blair came into power. And I don't think that that's got anything to do particularly or, or can't all be attributed to the last 10-ish years of the Tories, right? I think a lot of the seeds were sown by, 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 by Blair and by Labour and actually he's continuing to lead out a lot of the conversation on this stuff, right? And, and he's con continuing to stand up there and talk about what a perilous situation we're in and how awful everything is and how everything has got to fundamentally change again under his guidance, right? You know, so the, the first phase of, of subversion of an, of an enemy is demoralisation, that's 20 years. And then we get into destabilisation, which actually marries up quite neatly with COVID. Yeah, so about 2020 two to five years of, of, of destabilization where you radicalize human relations, society becomes antagonistic, the media turns on society, right? That sounds quite familiar. And then the next step, the next phase beyond destabilization is crisis. So I think that based on Blair being the demoralizer, which actually ultimately he has been, COVID being the destabilizer, which is three and a half years ago, and on these timescales, that's two and a half years to, de to thoroughly destabilize a nation, then we should be looking to some kind of significant crisis at some point in the next 12 to 18 months. So I think that that's what they're laddering all of this stuff up to. That's where we're headed. I, de I definitely agree. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's um, Satoni's way or the highway, um, for sure. And I think really probably now, um, Ben, it's time for me to hand over to you, actually, for the last word, because I'm so grateful that you watched what I would agree with you was an extraordinary day and extraordinary speakers um, saying some very worrying things for the future of Britain. Um, and I'm just really relieved that you watched it because I don't think many people knew that it was even on because the mainstream headlines are always being dominated by something else in order to distract our attention. So I'm going to hand over to you um, for the last word. And I know that we're going to be speaking again in the near future about tech, AI and data in general. And I'm really, really looking forward to that. But on the future of Britain and Sir Tony Blair and his Institute for Global Change, Ben Rubin, thank you so much. All the details of how to get hold of Ben and how to find his material are in the article beneath this interview. So please do connect. Ben, it's over to you and thank you. Thank you, Debbie. So I said a minute ago that we can opt out. We don't have to go along with this. We don't need these people. And that is absolutely correct. And as much as I was horrified by what I saw last week, although not particularly surprised. Uh, it was also kind of inspiring to me because it raised my sights a little bit. And in response to Tony Blair's Future of Great Britain, I'm going to launch my own Future of Great Britain. And I'm going to be running this on a substack to start with, which is pattern18.com. 
www.substack.com, P-A-T-T-E-R-N 1818.substack.com. And what we're going to talk about is the antidote to globalism, which is localism, right? So we are in a world where everything is becoming increasingly centralized, globalized, commercialized, digitized. And actually, we need to move to a world which is localized. So it supports local communities, local systems, uh, is um, socialized. So rather than just being purely run for profit, it's run for the benefit of the collective. Uh, is um, uh, decentralized. So actually, decision making and uh, opportunity and uh, potential for ownership and value creation and creativity and all that kind of stuff is pushed away from the center and out into society. And we need to build systems that aren't just digital, but are digitally enabled, that are in fact human systems. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think is getting lost with technology at the moment is the idea that it's an all or nothing thing. It's either technology or it's humanity. And at the moment, the dominant narrative is that it's all about technology. And our view is that humanity needs to be at the center and that the technology is merely there to enable us in living healthier, longer, more prosperous, happier lives. And that's what we're going to be doing over at Patton. So hopefully you will come and join us there and build a better future for Great Britain.